Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Today I'm on the phone with Allison Wood. Her memoir, Being Lolita, was just published earlier this week. Allison, thanks so much for coming on the show, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be here. Being Lolita is about your experience as a high school senior who was preyed upon by a teacher in his mid-twenties, even though it didn't seem like that to you at the time. Now, before we get started, I want to be clear and let listeners know that there are several violent acts depicted in the book, including a sexual assault. So readers who find discussion about rape triggering may want to skip this episode. Allison, when I opened up your book, the first thing that struck me was your dedication. It says, to my grandmother, who would be so scandalized and so proud, to my mother, who says she will never read this, and to 17-year-old Allison, who needed this book most of all. That was really touching to me because it spoke to the courage it took for you to write this book, or at least that's the way I saw it. Um, Do you see it that way? I mean, do you feel that it was a courageous act to write a book that your mom just says she won't even read? I think it is in some ways. Um, You know, it's funny. So my grandmother is 92, um, and she's living in a memory care facility because she has um, some dementia. But she was so supportive of me writing and going back to school, and I teach now. She was a kindergarten teacher. So this book is so important to her. Um, But at the same time, I know that a lot of the content she would be very scandalized by. And because she has dementia, the fear is, you know, maybe she would understand that this happened almost 20 years ago, or she would get confused and get upset. So I'm actually in the process of taking a hard copy and using an exacto knife to take out especially especially um possibly uh traumatic chapters to, to sort of make a grammy safe version um which i think is just it's just you know memoir is so strange in how in how that sort of thing happens um and you know my mother my parents my entire family they are all so supportive of me. They've been so supportive of me as a writer in the pieces I've written um, and supportive of me telling my story. But at the same time, you know, it's a very painful story, especially for someone who went through it in some way. And, you know, my mother was part of that. Um, And so for her, understandably so, she just feels like it would be far too painful um, to read and to sort of have to go back there, which I completely understand and respect. Um, but nonetheless, you know, she's one of the people who sort of gave me the model of being brave and being outspoken and not being, you know, intimidated to tell your story. And then I also sort of feel like when I was really thinking, because the dedication was one of the last things that I did in the book, and I was really thinking about like, okay, who did I write this book for? And I sort of came back to, well, in some ways I wrote it for me um, in that it's a book that I wish I'd had at 17. And writing a memoir is really complicated. And when I started this process, I I reread all of my high school journals, which is an incredibly painful, embarrassing thing that I do not recommend as like a, you know, fun weekend jaunt. 
Um, but I was really committed to using primary sources and, you know, being as rigid uh, with myself as I could be um, when it comes to, you know, the truth and being accurate um, and being fair to everyone. And that was its whole sort of emotional journey in of its own because I started off being so angry at myself, so frustrated, so embarrassed, so exasperated. Like, how did you, how are you so stupid? You know, like, what were you thinking? Um, just very angry. But of course, like many feelings of anger behind that was just sadness and hurt. And, you know, by being angry at myself, it was also distancing myself from the truth, which was I was a victim. I was preyed upon. I was groomed. There was a predator. And that was also really sad to realize just how little agency and how little understanding I had about myself. Um, so that's sort of how I came to that dedication. And I really hope that this book can be helpful and maybe illuminating to other readers, especially women, women my age, women older, women younger. I really wrote this book for other women. Well, let's talk a little bit about what brought you here, you know, the decision to write this memoir. At one point in the book, you write about the teacher, Mr. North or Nick, telling you to stop writing. Now, this was something you did incessantly from the time the two of you met. I mean, he was initially introduced to you by another teacher because he was someone who was supposed to be able to help you with your yeah. writing. So, you know, a lot of your relationship was writing notes and journaling. But after you graduated from high school, at his request, you basically stopped. Now, obviously, you're a long way away from this situation now. But when did you decide to start back writing? And when did you decide that you were going to write this memoir? Writing has always been very complicated for me emotionally, very much so in, you know, how I'm feeling about something in my life. It can sort of get in the way or encourage me to write. Um, when I went to college to undergraduate for the first time, I was a double major in English and creative writing. They had a, they had a creative writing major for undergraduates, which was very unusual at the time. So I began writing again relatively quickly for classes, pretty quickly after I left the teacher, after I broke up with him. But I wasn't writing about what had happened to me. And it was still very much a secret. I wasn't telling people. Um, and I thought that it was I thought that the story was different. You know, I still thought, well, it got pretty messed up at the end, but I still thought in some ways it was a love story. And in another strange way, I always knew I was going to write this book. I always knew, which is part of why I kept all those journals and I kept all those letters from him and all of the sort of other like relationship ephemera and uh, high school and passes from high school and literal receipts from hotels that we stayed at with his name and address and everything on it. I kept all that stuff um, in a in a box. And the funny thing is, though, I really thought that it was going to be a different book. I thought it was going to be a book about us as a love story. And then as I got older, it became very clear to me and clearer and clearer as time went on. Um, that this is not a love story, this is not at all what this book is, and that's not what my story is, and having to face the fact that what I, the narrative I told myself about a huge part of, a huge part of my life was not real. Um, and I sort of made the conscious decision to 
focus on the book and to try to finish the book when I went to, um, I got into NYU's MFA program. So when I was in the MFA, um, the first year I was lucky enough to be fully funded. So working on the book was kind of my full-time job. That was what I was doing. Um, and I had decided this is the book I want to write and, and this is how I'm going to write it. I knew that it was a story about abuse by then. And I knew that I wanted to be using Nabokov and to be in conversation with the text and with other text from Western literature. So it also wasn't really a choice. Um, I wish that my first book was maybe a really cool novel or, you know, something that it was a story about two strong women or uh, I, I kind of wish sometimes that the book was not this in some ways, because I also know that I'm sort of always going to be linked to Lolita and this story about abuse and things that are very painful and shameful is going to be, this is my first book. This will always be my first book, but it wasn't a choice. This was what I had to write about. There was this urgency, this, um, it was just, it was what I had to write. So, and I've really been focused on this project for the past four years, but I started it. Like I looked through my emails to sort of figure out what, when was I start work? When was I first working on this? And that was about seven years ago. But the past three years is really when I started like committing to working on this project in a daily, weekly, uh, primary way. Well, as you mentioned, you do have that connection to Lolita. I mean, your memoir is called Being Lolita because your teacher handed you a copy of the novel during the fall semester of your senior year when you were only 17. And he yeah. told you it was a love story. And later on, he called you his Lolita. He asked you to read it and often quoted select parts to you, but you didn't really read it very closely. Um, no. It was, no. <laughs> so, you know, for you... Only when you went to college and you took a lit class that explored the novel did you learn the truth about it, you know, that it wasn't a love story at all, that the protagonist was an unreliable narrator, that he was a sexual predator, in fact. Um, now, in the book, there was a point where he, the teacher, had you watch the movie with him, and it seemed like things were starting to click for you then because you hadn't read the book that closely. I'm not was not sure if you even finished it when you were in high school. I so don't think you, that I did. No. Yeah. So <laughs> you know, then which is not unusual, you know, maybe for a, a teenager because your your focus was on Nick, not really so much on reading this book he gave you. It's um, also, to be fair, a very long, dense book and Nabokov very famously hated editors and did not did not let editors touch his work. And to be frank, I, I think the book could be a bit shorter. I think it could have used some editing in part two. But, you know, well, you, know you mentioned that. Though. That you were, the parts about the traveling, you were you were tired of that. Um, yeah. But, you know, back to when things really started to, to click for you, it was that literature class that you had that yeah. the teacher brought it up and she was explaining everything about it. And you discovered so much that day, you know, that, Nick wasn't even pronouncing Nabokov's name correctly. Yeah. And just how big of a moment was that for you? And was it difficult to capture on the page because it was such a big moment? I did not write the book in order. 
Some people do write their books in order, like from the beginning to the end. That's not what I did. I wrote the moments. I started, I started by writing the moments that I remembered that were sort of the most charged for me. The ones that when I would think about this happening to me and this experience that, you know, they were the first ones that popped up. And that moment in my professor's classroom in college was one of those moments where I just remembered. And I remembered so clearly what she said, how she made the illusion to how teenagers don't know what's best for themselves. If you let a teenager choose whatever they want to eat, they would just eat pizza every day and then they would die of scurvy. I mean, I remember that, which is such a funny metaphor, but I, I remember that moment, those couple, that clap. And when I started working on the book, that was one of the first scenes that I wrote. Um, and it stayed pretty much the way it was when I first wrote it. Some of those early things, the opening, that moment in the classroom, I sort of got the first time around. Um, but a lot of the other pieces in the book I had to really work hard on and do a lot of rewrites and, you know, draft over and over again. Um, but I think because that moment was just so fixed in me and was just so clear, I think that was part of why it was easier to write. Um, I, I just cannot understate <laughs> how moving and impactful that class was for me. It was a psychoanalysis of literature class. We were talking about Freud and, you know, a whole bunch. We were looking at these books in very different ways. And that was one of those moments when there was a big aha moment for me where I realized, oh, this is not what I think it was. My understanding of the book, my limited understanding of the book, I, in a lot of ways, just sort of believe the um, pop culture ideas of Lolita. She's this little sex pot. You know, she's seductress. Because that was what that was what was presented to me. And to be fair, that's also what is presented in pop culture. I mean, one of the first reviews of Lolita said that it was the most convincing love story of our century. I mean, Vanity Fair wrote that. You know, it, it's not like it's this, uh, radical or small idea that Lolita is a love story. People think that. Um, and that was what I believed because that was what the teacher told me. And I didn't know any better because I was 17 and 18. And that's sort of, you know, prime, easy target time. So it was a long time to sort of understand what had happened and what the book really meant and so what my life really meant. Well, now you actually teach Lolita, and you mentioned that a little bit in the book. And I was just wondering, after everything that happened to you, it seems like some people might just want to run away from that novel and never even see it again. What is it about it, though, that makes you keep coming back to it and teaching it? I'm a big believer in integration. I believe that the sort of best way to deal with things, um, traumatic things, difficult things, um, is to sort of try to connect it all in yourself. So I, even though that's very difficult, but that's also sort of what good therapy is for. Um, <laughs> so I don't want to run away from these things in my past, from these traumatic things, from these difficult things. And that includes the book. Um, I only... Uh, I only give out the first 10 chapters of the book. I would never make my students 
especially my undergraduates read the whole thing. I think it's boring and it's overwritten. And I mean, but at the same time, I also think that it's beautiful. The opening, um, Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul. It's beautiful. There's no arguing that. That is a writer using all of their tools and making amazing choices. And it's also a great example of an, op- of an opening of a book or just an opening that sets up everything. Lolita, her name is mentioned 13 times, I believe, in one page. Um, it, go, it breaks down the language. It makes it clear that this is a book about obsession, that this is a book about writing. It creates all these things very quickly. It also tells you that the narrator is a murderer. We always sort of skip over that and don't notice, but <laughs> it's right there. So I think it's also a great example of good writing. Um, but then part of the reason I include the other nine chapters is because that also shows how Nabokov was creating Humbert's strength as a narrator, even though he was an unreliable narrator, narrator but hiding that through using literary illusions, through um, making it all seem so romantic in his writing style. I just think it's a great example of writing and the power of language, which is something that I want my students to leave my classroom thinking about and feeling like they too can be powerful. But I also teach the book in context with um, some of the Poe that's referenced in the book. We read the poem Annabelle Lee, for instance, which Humbert Nabokov references repeatedly in those opening chapters. We read Rebecca Solnit's Men Explain Lolita to Me, that wonderful essay, um, which I think also brings it into more of a current cultural context. We read The Grand Unified Theory of Female Pain by Leslie Jameson, which again brings up this wonderful ideas of suffering and pain and how it connects to Western literature. So it sort of connects these dots, I think. And then at the end of class, we read that wonderful McSweeney's piece, um, If Women Wrote Men the Way That Men Wrote Women. And it is the one of the funniest pieces of satire I have ever read. And there's a section in there where it's a very sort of Lolita moment, but it's a, pre- it's a professor Nabokovica and this young male graduate student. So everything is sort of, you know, subverted and, and it's just so funny. And it's wonderful because Lolita is one of the last things that I teach. And it's just such a wonderful moment for me because by the end of class, everyone understands the joke of that piece of the McSweeney's piece. We're all in the joke. Everyone laughs and finds it hilarious. Whereas if I taught this in the beginning of class, I don't know if my students would get the joke. So I try to embrace things that were difficult and also use it as an example of, you know, Lolita is not a love story. Don't be swayed by the power of language. Learn how to interpret and understand it. That's really important to me. And those are things that, those are skills and ideas that I want my students to leave with. Well, Allison, going back a little bit in the book to when you first graduated from high school and you were seeing Nick, then you were dating him, I guess, sort of. It's really hard to even know how to talk about this. Um, It's something that I continue to struggle with. Do I use the term relationship? Was he my boyfriend? None of those feel right, but it's also... I mean, what what word do I use? I know, it's very complicated. I still struggle with finding the right word. Yeah. Well, you know, just in reading this, there were so many times when I was really afraid for you. Um, 
you know, Nick would become enraged about something and he would yell or he would throw something. You write about one time you had a fight and he threw your clothes outside from a balcony. Yeah. And so, you know, this was in the early aughts before nearly everyone kept a cell phone with them all the time. And there were so many times I was reading and I was thinking, you know, he could have killed you or anything could have happened and no one would have known because he didn't allow you to tell anyone that you were with him and your parents didn't know your friends didn't know. I mean, there was just no one. And it seemed like the threat of violence was always there. Uh, And then the way you wrote these themes, you always clearly showed us what happened, but you very rarely let us into your head in these scenes. For example, you know, we don't know what you were thinking when you were cleaning up from the glass he threw at the wall or when you had to go outside in the snow to retrieve your clothes. And there were just so many times I found myself mad uh, on your behalf that he was having you do these things or that he was treating you this way. Why did you decide to just kind of show those moments and not really tell us, you know, what you were thinking, you know, when you had to go outside in the snow and it was cold and, you know, he didn't even... He, you know, this was uh, that scene. You guys had a big fight, then you made up. But instead of him going outside and getting them and bringing them back in, like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you had to do it. Why didn't you want to take us into your head in so many of those moments? Well, I think it was a definite choice. I didn't want to tell the reader how to feel, so I didn't want to make those decisions for my reader. I wanted my reader to have their own emotional experience and their own natural response to what was happening, especially because I feel like oftentimes there is a tendency towards victim blaming in our society due to patriarchy, due to lots of reasons. But I think it's easy to sort of take the Humbert Humbert point of view of this and, oh, well, I wanted it. I was this sexy young girl. I was asking for this. There was technically consent. I was 18. I had just graduated from high school. Nothing was wrong. Um, And I don't think that's accurate, but I wanted my reader to be able to make those decisions. And I also wanted the interiority when it did happen to be really strong. And if there's constant interiority, it doesn't stand out in the same way. And then also because it was so long ago, I don't remember exactly what I was thinking. I I felt like it was always my fault. I was very ashamed. I blamed myself. So it's hard for me to understand or even sort of get back into that place of how was I making sense of this? And I don't, I still don't entirely understand, but I do my best to show it. So that way there's sort of a fairness and a plainness to the story. And I can't then feel like, oh, I was trying to sway a reader or I was trying to manipulate the situation for my reader. I really feel strongly that I did my very best to not do that whenever I could and to just sort of stick to being fair. So, And I wanted the interiority to be saved for moments where I thought it was really important for a reader to know what I was thinking and what I was feeling and how an experience was shaping me. Well, that really brings me to when you told Nick 
that you didn't see a future for the two of you and that you wanted him to take you home. Like you were done with this relationship and you wanted him to take you home. And he just very calmly replies, let's talk about this at the hotel. Once you get there, you two fight some more, and then when you try to leave the room, he blocks the door and he rapes you there. In the book, you don't use that word or the term sexual assault, but you do call it violence. Why did you avoid those words? Is it going back to not wanting to tell the reader what to think? And was that the hardest part of this for you to write? Well, I think the reason I didn't use the terms sexual assault or rape was in part because, yes, I did not want to make those decisions for the reader. Um, I didn't want to tell the reader what something was. I wanted them to be able to decide and for them to be able to interpret. It was also for legal reasons. Um, Frankly, there are reasons I just simply wasn't allowed to use certain terms, even though I might now deeply think that, well, that's what it was. Um, Due to legal things, um, issues of libel, things like that, I was encouraged to not use those words. So it underscored and sort of reiterated my own instinct to, again, just tell the story. Um, And I think that really does also bring up what you had said earlier about the innate danger that I was constantly in at that time. I had a cell phone, but it was for emergencies only because cell phones were so expensive at the time. So it just stayed in my uh, car um, glove compartment box. It's just like sort of an emergency thing. So I was constantly with Nick in secret. No one knew where I was. If he had seriously hurt me, you know, if he had attacked me or killed me, nobody would have known where I was. We were constantly going on road trips up to Ithaca and um, other places, and no one ever knew where I was. And that danger never occurred to me at the time, ever. Like when I was 17 and 18 and 19, I had no idea the amount of danger I was in. I see it very clearly, and that's honestly part of what is so disturbing about what happened to me. And I think that moment in the hotel room was one of those moments when I really realized, fuck, I'm I'm really trapped. Um, There's no way out. And it was, that was definitely the scene that was hardest for me to write, unquestionably. I put off writing that scene for so long. Um, I knew I had to write it. I mean, I didn't have to write it, of course, but I felt like, I felt like it was important for my reader to know what had happened and, again, to sort of just have the facts, which is the opposite of what Nabokov did in Lolita, where it's all unreliable narrator and it's all from his perspective and this interiority of Humbert. I really wanted to tell the reader very plainly this is what happened in some ways in contrast to the way that Lolita was written and crafted. And I also felt like that was a moment where I did my best to capture on the page what it felt like when it was happening. And what I remember was disassociating and not being particularly in touch with my body when it happened and staring out this corner and at shadows in the room. And I tried to write that. And I also 
have found that when writing about deeply traumatic things, it's not as effective to say, it hurt, I was so upset, I was scared, um, I was angry. That's not particularly impactful to a reader. That does not create space for a reader to have their own reactions. So not only did I feel like it was a more accurate choice to try to describe this dissociation, disassociation that I was having and the emotional and sort of interior experience, but also I felt like it was a better craft choice. Um, so not only was it accurate, but I was hoping that it would also leave room for the reader to experience it on their own in some ways. Well, you just mentioned that you had to think about some legal issues in writing this, and you had to worry about libel. And I just wonder, do you ever, you know, obviously you had those concerns, but do you ever on any other level just think he's going to pick up this book and he might try to come after me? Because he was very unstable and... um as we talked about before, the threat of violence was always there with him. So I was wondering, do you have any fears related to that? And if so, how do you face them? I think I have the same fears that every woman memoirist or essayist has. Um, when I wrote my first sort of big published piece was called Get Home Safe, My Rapist Said, and it was published in the New York Times. And it was about how when I was 23, I was raped by my boss at work. And I got hundreds, hundreds of emails and messages and texts and phone calls within the first 24 hours. And um, there were hundreds of messages from strangers. And those messages basically came, when you come down to it, they were sort of in three camps. My favorite camp, of course, was the ones that were, oh, my goodness, congratulations. This is such a beautifully written piece. <laughs> I loved those messages. Those were nice. Um, then the largest amount of messages were from women and were from women expressing um, just sort of saying thank you um, because it was published in 2015. This was way before Me Too. It was a very big deal to have a first-person um, account of rape in a national paper. Um, it was sort of unheard of in some ways. And um, women just saying thank you for talking about my experience because they had a similar experience and oftentimes going into a lot of detail about that experience. So those emails were very meaningful, but also very hard to read. Um, but then I also got a fair amount of hate mail and emails and messages from and comments on things from strange men saying, wow, you slut, you whore, you're clearly a liar. Um, and those were also difficult um, and very frustrating. And I got so many of those that at a certain point, I um, actually pretty quickly, um, I had a friend sort of take over reading my public email and um, sort of just sifting through and deleting and, you know, sort of only letting me know when there were really nice ones or things like that. Um, and so I expect a similar response. Um, I want to believe that, you know, since Me Too has happened, things are better. But I know from other friends of mine who have published deeply personal or books about trauma at the hands of men that it can get really ugly. 
Um, one of my closest friends is T. Kara Madden, who wrote the extraordinary book, um, the memoir, Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls. And in it, at one point, she details being sexually assaulted when she was 14. And her assailant began stalking her in real life after she published an essay about it. And um, he ended up being jailed. Thank goodness. Um, charges were filed and he was prosecuted and he's in jail now. Um, and that's one of the worst ex uh, experiences that I know has happened. But of course, I'm worried. Um, and of course, in the back of my mind, I have concerns. Um, but I also do my very best to not let them stop me. I feel like the teacher already in many ways um, negatively impacted my life, obviously. It was incredibly traumatic. It was incredibly damaging. Um, and in some ways will affect the rest of my life. Um, I try to make sure it's in positive ways and that I do my very best to not be like him when I teach and to sort of teach the opposite way in some ways and to be a source of support and kindness and care for my students in ways that are appropriate, that have boundaries. But I, I'm not, I'm realistic. I know that it could get bad um, and I very much hope it doesn't, but I've tried to prepare as much as possible for the possibility. Um, and honestly, that's one of the few things I'm a bit grateful for, not a bit, I'm, I'm grateful for, is that due to COVID, I'm not going to be touring. Um, all of my events are going to be virtual because I was afraid, what if he just shows up at some event? Um, that that would be very difficult for me to handle, especially because, you know, nobody knows who he is. Nobody knows what he looks like. Nobody knows his real name um, due to legal reasons. Um, everybody in the book, unless they have died, um, and a few, few, few characters in the book have died, um, other than them, names are changed, descriptions are changed. I did my due diligence in trying to protect everybody's identities and to, um, again, sort of to be fair. So it's definitely something that I'm aware of, but I don't worry about it on a day-to-day -day basis. If I worried about that, I would be paralyzed and I wouldn't have written this book and I much less would have published it. But I believe in being brave and being courageous and doing what's right not what you're intimidated to do or to act from a place of strength versus to act from a place of fear. You don't show us the other adults in your life that much in this yeah. memoir. We don't see your parents a lot. We don't, I mean, we barely see your other teachers. And because you do that, it gives us this sense that you are very much alone, which is partly how this relationship was allowed to happen. Was that another conscious choice as a writer to show that you were very isolated? Or was that more about protecting these adults who maybe should have known that something was going on, something wasn't quite right? It was both. It was definitely both. It was a conscious choice. Um, and there were, in the beginning of the process, when I was really sort of working on the book, I thought a lot about it and I wavered a lot. But in the end, I felt best about making the craft choice to not talk about the other adults in my life very much because I felt like that would sort of up the isolation that the reader felt and understood um, that I was experiencing because, I, again, I feel like that was 
the truest I could try to recreate how I experienced that time in my life. There were some adults who were doing their best. Um, I mean, I had a social worker in school who was wonderful and who really fought for me. My mother fought for me in a lot of ways. Um, There were a few other teachers who, um, I mean, the teacher who introduced me to the teacher, to the, my creative writing teacher who introduced me to Mr. North, she was trying to support me. She thought, wow, Allie is a very talented writer. Let's get somebody else to maybe work with her after school to give her more encouragement and to help her. So it's tough. Um, And the other thing is, in addition to it being a craft choice to help sort of create an environment and an atmosphere, I also did not want this book to be an indictment of anybody. I firmly believe that when you're writing a memoir, the hardest person you need to be on is yourself. Um, That you only know what you experience. You only know your uh, memory. You only know your feelings. And I didn't want to blame anybody. Um, And I didn't want to make assumptions or to try to recreate someone else's experiences. So there were moments where I tried to show the reader what my experiences at the time were like, but I really chose to focus on Mr. North as the primary adult in my life because he was the primary adult in my life. Of course, as a adult um, and as a teacher now, I am very angry. (laughs) Writing this book really uh, had me sort of tap into a new level of anger when I began teaching. It sort of created this whole new level of this whole new layer of frustration and anger at what happened to me. Um, Not only because I understood in a very uh, visceral way how deeply inappropriate it was, um, what he did to me was at all moments, but also I wish so much that other people, other adults in my life had stepped in, which now that I teach and now that I'm, you know, a grown up, I feel, I feel like that's my responsibility. My responsibility is to protect my students, to support my students. And these are college students. I cannot even imagine if you're working in a high school, if you're working with teenagers, how could you not feel this deep, desire and responsibility towards them and even to my parents um you know my parents were getting divorced my father wasn't particularly involved um when I was a teenager as you know teenage teenagers are tough (laughs) I mean to be fair like not many teenagers are close with their parents um so my experience was not unusual in that it's 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 not um you know it's no one's fault Um, but looking back, I do wish, um, you know, why didn't anybody push me? Why didn't anybody ask tough questions? Um, and no one did. And again, I put the blame on me. I really try to interrogate my choices versus uh, assume things or try to imagine things from other people. But, um, yeah, as an adult, it's hard, and I have a new layer of anger about what happened. And, and of course, behind that is actually just sadness. Um, and it's sadness and it's hurt, and it's, you know, sort of me wishing that things had been different because then maybe my life would have been different. So, 
Yeah, I mean, it's complicated, but I really tried to be as fair as possible as I could to other people in the book, in, including other adults. So, Well, Allison, I'm going to sort of switch gears now and just ask you a couple of questions about what you like to read. Oh, sure. Do you, do you have any, <laughs> you know, we talked about Lolita, obviously, that's a book that's um, just sort of intertwined with your life and you teach it now. But outside of that, do you have any, like what I like to call go-to books, do you have any that you read over and over again because they just really speak to you? Definitely. Um, a book that I reread every semester that I teach is The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. Um, it's a book that was, I adored that book when I was in high school. That was one of the first sort of really beautiful books that I read. Um, and of course, it had a younger woman as a narrator, and it was very much about sort of a coming of age story. And I was always so frustrated that we read Catcher in the Rye, but we didn't read anything like Sylvia Plath. Because I think in some ways, both of those books are so similar in the story that they're telling, which is a coming of age story, you know, a young person sort of trying to figure out their life and struggling with it um, and struggling with mental illness as well in different ways. But I reread that book every semester and I'm always thrilled to. Um, I love short stories, especially because when I'm working on sort of a bigger project, my not my attention, but my time is limited. So I love reading short stories um, and essays and um, books that are broken up in that way, like Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls. It's such a beautiful book. Abandon Me by Melissa Thebos is another wonderful book of memoirs. So there's sort of shorter sections, so you can kind of dip in and out of it. Um, the Empathy Exams by Leslie Jameson. I've read that book, I don't know how many times, um, Maggie Nelson's Blue X is another book that I go back to constantly. Um, I reread Citizen by Claudia Rankine. I, I teach that every single semester, and I always reread it and love rereading it. It's just such a wonderful, um, it's just such a wonderful, it's a wonderfully written book, and it's also so smart and astute and accurate. Um, I also read a lot of poetry. I love poetry sort of for the same reason that I think I like shorter things right now in that you can read a couple poems and you feel full for the rest of the day. You know, you feel sustained artistically. And I also think just because you're writing prose doesn't mean you shouldn't be aware of every single word, every line, sounds. So I love reading poetry sort of a way to reconnect to what I think are the basics of storytelling. It's not just about the narrative or the plot. It's about how you're telling the story, the power of language. So I love Ada Limon. Um, I love Morgan Parker. Um, you know, I also am a huge, I've also reread Jazz by Toni Morrison multiple times. I think it's one of the most beautiful books ever written. And that narration, that strong uh, character point of view is just, ugh, it's, it's just amazing. I love it so much. Um, so yeah, I, I think I have a pretty diverse reading list, but I do primarily read women. I primarily read other women. And um, that's not exactly a conscious choice, but it's something that I've just noticed. I'm mostly reading women these days and or queer writers. Um, and 
I am very happy about that. <laughs> well, what are you reading right now? Right now? Do you even have time with the book promotion? I know it's a busy time. It is a busy time. Actually, right now I'm rereading Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, which I think is such a wonderful book and supportive and gentle. And it's sort of like a great big hug kind of book about creativity and being an artist and being a writer. And I think it's it's a book that I've actually come back to many times because whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed or exhausted or burned out, which are definitely feelings that I'm dealing with right now, being this is my first book. It's very scary, especially in the time of COVID and um, everything's being so tumultuous in the world and with our, you know, Dorito in chief and everything happening. Um, it's a very stressful time to put out a book, much less your first book. So in order to sort of help combat those feelings of burnout and being, you know, artistically overwhelmed, I've been reading Big Magic again, and it's just such a, it's just like a big hug. Um, it's, I, I love that book. It's really, really warm and supportive. So I constantly recommend it to my students as well when they're feeling burned out or overwhelmed or just sort of stuck. I, I recommend that book a lot. Yeah. Are you already working on your next project? Yes. I've not been working on it much these past couple of weeks because I've been really caught up in, you know, these last few weeks before the book publishes. But yes, I've started another novel, um, or, well, I've started my first novel, and I'm excited about it. Um, so hopefully uh, it will continue growing. Um, I've The advice I've gotten from, I think, everyone who has published a book is to already be working on another book, to not wait, um, because it can be really overwhelming, and, you know, sort of the second book fear and all, the second book stress and the pressure, um, so I'm already working on a new piece. Yeah. Allison Wood, thank you so much for coming on to talk about your work. It really was a pleasure chatting with you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so honored. I love your podcast. I'm just so excited. Thank you. You can find out how to win a free copy of Being Lolita on our website, readmorepodcast.com. You can also support Allison and the show through buying the book on our site. You can follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more.